Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we expanded our view of the Industrial Revolution in early 19th century Madagascar, with special focus given to the policies of Empress Rana Felona and her ministers. At face value, her policies were extremely successful. In just 17 years since taking power in 1828, Rana Feluna had transformed Madagascar's industrial companies from failing ghost firms into successful and growing enterprises. But just when things seemed to be at their most promising, a darker shadow loomed over Madagascar's future. The seeming economic prosperity and political stability of Rana Feluna's rule are each built on a brutal foundation of oppression and subjugation the consequences of which will surely rear their ugly heads in the future. Season 4, Episode 20. Progress for the Few, Misery for the Many. In my opinion, Fanampuana, the corvée labor system of Imerina, was and always had been the single most important aspect of Malagasy state power. I think you could argue pretty convincingly that every institution in Imerina was either dependent on or existed as a product of Fanampuana. The belief in Hasina, for example, and by extension Saint-Pierre and Ogie, not only existed to justify the hierarchy of the Merina social system, but also as a system of reward and reprimand for Fanampuana. A group of conscript laborers who performed their job well were rewarded with Hasina, while those who failed to perform adequately had their Hasina diminished. The very existence of the Merina bureaucracy, such as the six administrative divisions created by André Nampoini Merina, or schools and censuses created by Radama, each were used to make the process of raising Fanampuana more efficient. Imerina was the most historically populous and agriculturally productive region of Madagascar because of infrastructure built by Fanampuana workers in the 17th and 18th century. But starting in the 1820s, Radama's and later Ranafaluna's industrialization initiative radically transformed the purpose and practice of the ancient system of Fanampuana. What had once been a system where people were drafted into unpaid, unfree work for a few weeks of each year had been transformed into essentially a military draft for unfree labor. Under Radama, serving Fanampuana obligations could result in being tasked with unpaid industrial or construction work for years, with only brief periods of leave. It also covered a wide variety of positions, from educated factory floor managers to engineers to blue-collar builders and workers. As you might have expected, Rana Faluna's drive to militarize this Marina industrial economy heightened demands for Fanampuana even further. Remember that while it's tempting to credit the Marina monarchy itself or the owners of foreign firms with the progress made in industrialization, all of this progress was only possible due to the hard work of people performing Fanampuana labor, to create the infrastructure, buildings, and machines needed at a worksite, and then to operate it even after its completion. Without this pool of labor, the state was nothing. However, the extension of Fanampuana was a double-edged sword for the Medina economy. On the one hand, it wielded the advantage of supplying absurdly large numbers of workers at an unbeatable price. On the other hand, reliance on the Fanampuana had essentially killed any possibility of Madagascar developing a consumer base for industrial goods, an idea which Rana Falona had long since abandoned and given up on. After all, workers paid in Hasina clearly won't be able to buy the consumer goods they toil to produce. 
Rana Falona had already accepted the conceit that a consumer economy would not develop in Madagascar, which is why she had sought to turn the Medina state itself into the primary consumer of industrially produced goods in the first place. What was more devastating to the Medina economy was the effect that the expansion of Falampuana had on the agrarian economy of the island, which, mind you, still composed the vast majority of people. With much of the able-bodied population at a time wrapped up in Fanampuana for great lengths, the poorest peasant families and wealthiest Menekelje owners alike had to reckon with constant shortages of free agricultural labor. This void was, of course, filled by unfree agricultural labor. In this case, slaves. Now, domestic slavery in the Merina which is to say slavery for the purpose of local use rather than exportation to foreign merchants, is something which we have yet to thoroughly address in this series. The topic of slavery is always a controversial and contentious topic, for reasons that I don't think warrant much explanation. But as an important social and economic institution in Imerina, the topic would be irresponsible to avoid. Like every other single corner of this planet, Malagasy people enslaved others. In fact, as we illuminated at the very start of this season, there is a very plausible theory that the earliest settlement of Madagascar by Austronesians were Bornean people brought to the island by their Malayan enslavers. Now, the topic of slavery on an island as culturally and economically diverse as Madagascar is simply far too deep to get into here. But to reiterate what was stated in previous episodes, slavery in highland Madagascar was likely a present but fairly small-scale institution before the 19th century. We know very little about slavery in this period outside of its role in the tributary obligations to the dominant Sakalava kingdoms and the small-scale but present sale of enslaved workers to European, East African, and Arab merchants. But the growth of slavery into a much more prevalent institution in Imerina had its roots during the reign of Andrenampoini Merina. A combination of the great number of wars and a steady decline in tribute offered to the Sakalav meant that the country was exposed to its first major wave of enslaved workers being brought into Imerina in the early 19th century. The new glut of people for sale in domestic Merina markets meant that enslaved workers were remarkably cheap. By 1810, Almost every family in Imerina, including poorer peasants, usually had at least one enslaved worker toiling on their behalf. To families where free workers could labor on farms, owning enslaved workers was a pleasant luxury. It meant a reduction in workload as well as greater social prestige. The influx of enslaved workers elevated many Hofa to a new living standard. In a sense, owning enslaved workers was viewed by the Hufa in a manner that is eerily reminiscent of all things to modern notions of home ownership. While this comparison is admittedly quite strange at first, the parallels become a lot more noticeable when you hear what Andinampoini Merina had to say about slavery. Quote, Do not give free reign to your slaves, for they are both a legacy and a possession. They are like 600 measures of rice stored in a granary but that cannot be eaten by women and children. They are like jewels passed down from the ancestors, like a thick silk cloak that protects us against the cold and frost. In hot weather, they are like a velvet sheet on which you can enjoy tranquility. They are an adornment, a source of pride. To Andrinampoini Merina, enslaved workers are beyond ordinary property, but a signpost of ancestral success. Like a home, slave ownership was an indicator of middle-class status, the Malagasy equivalent of a suburban house with a white picket fence, 
an appreciating asset which can be passed down to your children. Of course, the key difference here is that, unlike white picket-fenced homes, enslaved workers are people. They, like anyone else, had feelings, dreams, aspirations, love, envy, and every other complex swirling emotion that makes us human. They thought and felt. And we'll talk about their perspective on enslavement, a perspective excluded from these discussions far too often, just a bit later in this show. While the number of enslaved people in Imerina grew radically under Andrian Poinimerina, its pace of growth accelerated even further under Radama, after his official abolition of Imerina's participation in the European slave trade. This growth was further bolstered by himself and Rana Faluna later, embarking on numerous conquests of their neighboring peoples and kingdoms. By the end of Radama's rule, the enslaved population of Imerina swelled to an absurd 33% of the total population. Under Rana Faluna, the enslaved population further expanded to an all-time height of 66%, though after reaching this peak, that population would gradually regress back to a state closer to 33. The growing enslaved population of Imerina, combined with the expanding demands for Fanampuana, further shifted the Merina cultural perception of slavery. For starters, state authorities became increasingly weary about the possibility of a slave revolt. Merina elites held a paranoid fear of the existence of a supposed secret conspiracy among enslaved men to rise up and kill their masters at any time. In the mid-1820s, this fear had become so rampant that, eventually, Radama was forced to enact the most infamous policy in Merina history. For the next several months, to reduce the likelihood of rebellion, all fighting-age men being captured into slavery during that period were summarily executed instead. Additionally, new ideologies began to emerge to justify the enslavement of others. Prior to the 1820s, the idea of a Merina identity was still a firmly political rather than cultural concept. If you pulled a person from off the streets of Antanarifu in 1800 and asked who they were, their response would probably say Hufa or Andriana. The idea of being Merina might not even cross their mind. In the 1820s and 30s, however, the need to ideologically distinguish the in-group from the out-group resulted in the dissemination of ethnic essentialism. The understanding of Merina as a strictly political designation began to fade, and was replaced, at least among educated elite circles, with an ethnic or even really racial identity. This was, of course, coupled with a series of emerging stereotypes of subjugated peoples in order to justify their lower status. These stereotypes were reinforced primarily through the dispersal of popular proverbs and idioms. Besanu Sanu, for example, were stereotyped as a simple people, slavishly devoted to their work. Betsy Leo, on the other hand, were depicted as childlike simpletons. One Malgasi folk idiom that emerged at the time was to salute a horse like a Betsy Leo, a term used to poetically describe perceived stupidity. As the ideology justifying enslavement and conquest of foreign peoples was ramping up, so too was the necessity of enslaved labor for Malgasi peasants. With a growing number of Hufa regularly occupied with Fanampuana during Radama and Ranfaluna's rules, enslaved workers increasingly filled their niches in Madagascar's traditional risicultural sector. As the ideology justing enslavement and conquest of foreign peoples was ramping up during this period, so too was the necessity of enslaved labor for Malgasi peasants. With an expanding number of Hofa frequently occupied with Fanampuana, enslaved workers became increasingly necessary to fill their niches in Madagascar's traditional agricultural sector. 
Ownership of enslaved workers was no longer a luxury, a nest egg to pass down to your children. Rather, lacking enslaved workers could now mean starvation, since so many of your family members were constantly away working in a factory or forge town. For most of Radama's rule, the growing demand for enslaved workers among the peasant class was balanced out by the ever-increasing supply from foreign wars. Now, at first, the price for enslaved workers was kept fairly low, as the growing demand meant growing supply from foreign wars. In fact, I think you can make a solid case that the desire to capture enslaved workers played just as big a role in inspiring Radama's many wars as a desire to conquer and unite the island. However, not too long after Ranafaluna took power, the instability following her coup and, of course, the war with France put a temporary hiatus on foreign conquests. With no foreign conquests, of course, the flow of captured enemies came to a halt. What didn't stop, though, was the unrelenting demand for Hofa families to purchase enslaved workers. With demand at an all-time high and supply at an all-time low, the price of enslaved people hyperinflated. From 1820 to 1840, the price of an enslaved worker in a Malagasy market multiplied almost 12-fold. Quickly, enslaved workers were becoming priced out of affordability for peasant families, and accordingly, ownership of slaves was becoming a matter of great economic disparity. The wealthy, able to keep up with this rapid inflation, soon owned large armies of enslaved workers, while peasant families were increasingly without. Meanwhile, in 1833, disaster struck. In previous years, most bad rice harvests had been caused by a lack of rain. But in 1830, the opposite occurred. A record deluge of precipitation hit the highlands. The Medina hydraulic infrastructure was quickly overwhelmed. Meanwhile, with the Fanampuana tied up on industrial projects, the repair efforts are far slower than expected, and an entire year's harvest was lost to the floods. Any attempted recovery was exacerbated by a shortage of labor, caused by, you guessed it, the Fanampuana and the high price of enslaved workers. As a result, from 1833 until 1834, Imerina actually suffered its first serious famine since the kingdom's reunion. For a people who had experienced nothing but conquest, success, growth, and prosperity for the last three decades, such a sudden backslide in living conditions was an unthinkable surprise. Now, Rana Falona was not inactive on this matter. She actually implemented a few different policies to try to curb the rapid growth of the price of enslaved workers. Her invasions of Minabe and Boigny in the 1840s were motivated in part by this desire to enslave more people and get them into local markets. Additionally, these new conquests provided access to ports on the west coast, which gave Merina traders cheaper access to trade with mainland African slave merchants. Traders from the cities of Angoche and Kelimane in modern Mozambique as well as Afro-Arab merchants from Zanzibar and Kilwa in modern Tanzania, supplied great quantities of enslaved workers to Madagascar during the 1840s and 50s. In fact, during these decades, imports from mainland Africa to Madagascar quadrupled. Slaver ships rode the Zambezi River down from the highlands of modern Malawi, carrying crowds of captured Maganja, Chipeta, and Makoa peoples before arriving in western Madagascar, where they deposited their human cargo in local markets. This was far from the first time that enslaved non-Malagasy people had been brought to the island. However, the unprecedented scale of the population arriving radically altered the ideological justification of slavery in Madagascar. 
Which brings us to how the system of slavery looked on a human level. As is often the case, we sadly have very, very few personal accounts of slavery in Madagascar written from the perspective of an enslaved worker themselves. Studying the topic is further muddied by our limited English vocabulary. Just like we did in our episode on slavery in the Ashanti Empire, it's important to differentiate between different forms of enslavement which coexisted within the Kingdom of Madagascar. Slave, of course, is an English word descended from Latin. However, Malagasy categories of enslavement are significantly less useful in understanding the material conditions of enslaved workers' lives than they were in Ashanteman. For example, the two most common forms of enslavement on Madagascar were andefu, meaning people owned by hufa, and tandapamantie, or domestic servants of the Andriana. For the most part, these categories tell us very little about how much autonomy these people had or the conditions they lived in. There is an exception to this, though, the third and smallest category of enslaved Malgasi, known as the royal servant lineages. These groups consisted of three major enslaved families who had long served the Mpanjake Merina. These people were not free. They were bound to the emperor for life as a result of their heritage and essentially served as the monarch's personal agents. Not coincidentally, most of them also claimed an abnormally high degree of Fasimba heritage. They performed any task the king or queen desired, which could be something as ordinary as fetching water to the palace, or something as prestigious as conducting meetings with foreign diplomats. You might remember how Andrian Pointy Merina, for example, reformed the Merina trade system by empowering state merchants to act as the sole means of exchange in the country. Those merchants were from the king's servant lineages. Besides their proximity to the king, it's important to remember that the idea of social prestige in Imerina was intimately tied to how long your ancestors had lived and worked on the local land. And remember, nobody had worked on the land longer than the Fasimba. On the other hand, ordinary enslaved workers, the people you'd see in fields or mines, were referred to collectively as maintier. The word maintier literally translates to black. But it's important to recognize that the term black here is not necessarily referring to skin color. Rather, in the context of slavery on Madagascar, the term black is better translated as tainted. For example, in the Betsy Leo country, the word maintier was used interchangeably with olotie madio, or unclean people. This is, of course, translated with fotie, meaning white. And, again, to reiterate, White here is not referring to the Western idea of a white race. A free person with either dark skin or light skin would be considered fautier all the same, while in the same vein, an enslaved person with light skin or dark skin would be considered maintier all the same. While this is not necessarily the perception within modern-day Madagascar, at the time, the association between white and black was not associated with concepts of race. Rather, it was an indicator of the widely held belief within Imerina that people who had been enslaved were somehow tainted for the rest of their lives, and could not be reintegrated as normal members of society. When purchased by a family, an ordinary enslaved worker would typically live in a small temporary settlement of tents at the bottom of the hill, in the shadow of their owner's home. Tents were used so that enslaved workers could move from various areas of the settlement, usually from field to field wherever their owner wanted them to be working at the moment. Since enslaved people were viewed as tainted or unclean, Manina went out of their way to separate enslaved workers as far from free people as possible. 
Ironically enough, this demand for distance would end up giving enslaved workers a surprising amount of autonomy. As a result, enslaved workers were managed largely autonomously within their living space, usually by a designated head overseer who was often enslaved themselves. This degree of separation had its advantages and disadvantages for enslaved people. On the one hand, being far away from the eyes of owners allowed enslaved workers a surprising degree of personal autonomy within their lives. It wasn't that uncommon, for example, for enslaved people in Imerina to acquire resources as bandits or work as small-time merchants or craftsmen in the Malagasy wilderness in the time between plantings and harvests. On the other hand, the small temporary slums in which they lived were, well, horrible, providing little shelter from the elements. Distance from owners also meant distance from their resources, and the semi-nomadic life imposed upon enslaved people in Madagascar gave them little opportunity to take measures to improve their own living conditions. As a result, the average lifespan of a person after their enslavement was quite short. Surprisingly enough, the skyrocketing price of enslaved workers in the 1830s and 40s did a lot to make their living conditions a bit less terrible. The consolidation of enslaved people under a shrinking number of wealthy landowners, as well as their increasing monetary value on the Malgasi market, meant that these owners were more likely to have resources invested in, well, less awful living conditions. This didn't necessarily make their lives better, as the lower number of available enslaved workers often meant that those who were around were worked harder than ever. But at least in terms of living conditions, the 1830s and 40s saw some significant improvement for enslaved workers. Of course, none of this changed that the system of slavery remained coercive in nature. One unique facet of the system of slavery on the island was that the status of slave was permanent and hereditary. Manina society did not view slavery as a temporary condition or one that could be escaped. By being a slave, you were essentialized as a tainted lineage, a person who had been removed from your ancestors and therefore removed from humanity. It was possible for enslaved people to procure legal freedom, but even if they were now technically free, the idea of being enslaved was now an immutable part of someone's identity. For example, marriage between Maintier and Fautier families were strictly prohibited and heavily stigmatized, and formerly enslaved people were often prohibited from engaging in regular economic activity in ordinary townships. Even after achieving their freedom, formerly enslaved people often found themselves working and living in the same semi-nomadic townships they had always lived in, as those were the only people willing to do business with them. All that changed was they were now eligible to be drafted for Fanampuana. They retained the stigma and terrible working conditions of slavery, while receiving none of the benefits and all of the obligations of being free. With this in mind, it shouldn't surprise you that it was actually quite common for enslaved Malgasi to reject offers to be freed from their bondage when they came. Enslaved workers from the mainland were collectively referred to as Makoa, a name derived from one of the many ethnic groups brought to the island through the slave trade. Basically, anyone from mainland Africa was Makoa, even if they were not from the Makua ethnic group from which the name derived. Whether or not being Makoa afforded you better or worse treatment than enslaved workers with their origins in Madagascar is a matter of debate and perspective. On the one hand, with the premium that Medina society placed on connection to ancestral land, Makoa people were perceived with special vitriol. If someone being removed from their ancestral homeland to a different part of Madagascar was enough to remove a piece of their humanity, people enslaved from off-island were viewed pretty much as beasts who had never had ancestors or history at all. 
since their homeland was so far removed from them to the point of irrelevance. Since the ancestors were the ultimate source of Hasina, the Makoa were perceived by Malagasy as an almost soulless people who could simply not give or receive Hasina under any circumstance. While you'd think that this could only result in worse treatment, and to be fair it often did, in some cases this almost inhuman perception of Makoa people actually strangely ended up providing new opportunities for them to earn autonomy and superior living conditions. In addition to existing outside the Malagasy system of Hasina and all the metaphysical assumptions that came with it, Makoa people had carried their own religious views with them across the sea. As a result, Malagasy observers often came to believe that their East African enslaved workers possessed mystical and exotic powers. Their purported magical abilities allowed some Makoa to advance their own autonomy. When slave owners got sick, Makoa were usually called in when traditional Malagasy medicines failed. Some enslaved Makoa were even able to use this position as spiritual or medical advisors to improve the living conditions for themselves and their families. On the other hand, these stereotypes of magical Makoa were also dangerous. If an owner fell sick and treatment wasn't working, it was equally likely for Makoa to be blamed for the illness as they were to be called in for help. Their supposed witchy powers were often invoked to prove Makoa involvement with sickness. This same framework applied to really any other type of unexpected disaster that hit a community. Whether it was an outbreak of plague or a series of hailstorms, Makoa were often the first to be called to solve the issue, and just as often the first to be scapegoated. In summary, the working classes of Madagascar, including free workers of the Fanampuana, Malgasi enslaved workers, and the enslaved mainlander Makoa, were each subject to intense exploitation in their own different ways. Malagasy labor was a brutal cycle of exploitation from start to end. Not only the state, but also European industrial specialists wrung the free workers dry through Falampuana, demanding longer and harder periods of work with little to no compensation. Now, the working classes of Madagascar did not always take this exploitation lying down. Workers, both enslaved and free, often resisted the Merina labor machine. How their resistance manifested varied considerably from person to person. In the vast majority of cases, resistance was passive. For Fanampuana workers, active resistance to their work usually meant enslavement or execution depending on its severity. While for enslaved workers, well, it was going to be execution. But Fanampuana and enslaved workers could often get away with less overt, more plausibly deniable resistance. Passive resentment often manifested in slow, inefficient work or an intentional but deniable destruction of tools and industrial equipment. In some cases, resistance became more overt. One of the most potent examples of active resistance came against James Cameron, one of the British missionaries leading the industrial effort in the 1830s. One day, Cameron was being transported to work in the typical manner for European craftsmen, as well as marina elites, in a hammock being carried by four Falampuana workers. While we're not sure what the exact inciting incident was, the workers suddenly decided that they'd had enough of their treatment in the Fanampuana, and they threw Cameron and his hammock into a nearby lake. Now, at face value, this stunt seems remarkably impotent and even a little bit juvenile, but such a small act of resistance was quite brave, honestly. The eventual fate of the men who threw the hammock is unknown. But the fact that these men were willing to truly risk their lives for such a small and ultimately meaningless act of revenge tells us something about the depths of their resentment for their exploitation. 
On a few rare occasions, Resistance took a much more destructive path, with, in more than a few instances, factories and plantations getting intentionally set ablaze by angry workers. But the most active and potent form of resistance came in the form of runaway communities. Rather than deal with the intense labor loads and exploitation of slavery or fanampuana, simply running away from work became an increasingly attractive option for many working-class Malgasy. If they successfully escaped, these runaways could sometimes find refuge in the wilderness among fellow escapees. These escapees could then cooperate together to avoid recapture, whether by aiding each other in hiding or through armed resistance. The first major community of runaway enslaved peoples in Madagascar was the so-called Republic of Manendie. This small state, formed on the frontier separating Imerina and Boigny, was formed by a combination of a few dozen refugees fleeing the early Merina conquests of Andrea Lampoigny Merina. The bulk of these people were Manendie, or a caste of enslaved people fighting in the Merina army as soldiers, who of course went on to inspire the name that historians later gave to this country. By 1840, the largest runaway community was that of the Kingdom of Salobe. The Antenose people of southern Madagascar were among the many, many groups of people conquered by Rana Faluna's imperial army. Most of the people were captured and either sold into slavery or integrated as citizens who were subject to Fanampuana. However, one group of more than 20,000 Antenosie escaped from their Marina conquerors and migrated further west into the wilderness of southern Madagascar, where they continued to resist Marina conquest. Eventually, this refugee community formed the largest of Madagascar's so-called slave republics, based out of their capital town of Salobe. While the original founders were free people seeking to avoid enslavement, their numbers were subsequently bolstered many-fold by refugees fleeing slavery or Fanampuana service in Ranafalona's kingdom. With the exception of Salobe and the Manendie Republic, though, most runaway communities were still in their infancy in this period, consisting of usually a couple hundred living on the fringes of Merina authority. While they were more of a mere annoyance for now, these runaway communities will eventually form a serious axis of resistance to Merina power. Salobe and Manendie will not be the last of Madagascar's slave republics. In fact, the most powerful of these slave republics, the so-called Betsiri Republic, was even able to raise an army of 10,000 men armed with the top-of-the-line modern weapons, capable of confronting the Merina army head-on. If you'd like to learn more about this group of escaped enslaved people who rose up to become the masters of their own domain, then you can do so by supporting the show at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Doing so will give you access to our 50-plus premium episodes, including this one, as well as ad-free listening, behind-the-scenes content, and much more, all while supporting our project of totally free online education. And to those already supporting us, a heartfelt thank you. But despite the wave of popular discontent among some of Imerina's working classes, Rana Faluna's industrial project continued chugging along mostly unaffected. The Merina state proved more than happy to use considerable amounts of force and repression to ensure that, no matter what resistance it faced, the industrialization initiative continued. The Kingdom of Madagascar remained stable, and its factories remained manned. But what would happen if the system of repression backing up the labor economy of Madagascar faltered? Well, among other things, it would mean the collapse of Madagascar's long fight to modernize its economy and society. 
And it turned out that for the Empress of Madagascar, the collapse of everything she had worked so hard to prop up was right around the corner. Join us for our next episode, as the center of Marina power refuses to hold, and the Marina Industrial Revolution comes to a sputtering halt. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebelabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Makocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwadike, Sheyun Olorontimain, Kwachua Mankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rassan Firgiani, Niti, Kitty, and Tariq Beetleman, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.